I don't know about you, but the Advent and Christmas seasons sort of combine to make up one of my favorite times of the year, year after year. And I've got to confess, I am a product of the Pacific Northwest, which means that the days, right, they're just so short this time of year. Um, way more darkness, it seems like, than light. And that's why I think that's why I think that the season of anticipation and hope and light breaking into the world little by little, uh, it, it, it's so meaningful to me because the darkness can feel heavy both physically and like literally and metaphorically. And I just love that this season has these built-in stories and direction of hopefulness. And I almost think it's my civic and Christian duty to have my house lit up and like the lights on the tree and the, and the windows. I just feel like Yes, this is important. This is like saying, okay, darkness, light is here, light's coming. So I don't know, I take that pretty seriously. Um, I also appreciate how this season uh, brings us back to the familiar story of Jesus every year. Whether it's through the prophets who point toward Jesus or the writings of the apostles that, um, that reflect on the life of Jesus or the gospel stories that, that tell the actual birth of Jesus. These well-rehearsed stories have a way of bringing hope and light into the darkness. Advent has a way of encouraging our hearts and emotions and even encouraging our actions towards things like hopefulness and and life-affirming acts of generosity and praise for the God who came to save us. But you know, part of worship isn't just in the feeling and the doing, it's also in the thinking. We're called to love God with all of our hearts, souls, minds, and strength. And you know, there's always a danger when we come to seasons like this where we tell the same stories over and over again, and we have some variations of the same songs and the same traditions. There's always a danger that we sort of just go with the flow and don't consider and think and engage our minds, but just sort of get in a routine. This Advent season has been a little bit different for us because we're, we're hearing many of the gospel texts each Sunday, like the Wasserman's read, the Annunciation story from Luke 1, where the angel comes to Mary and announces that she's going to have a child from the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, we, we hear these familiar stories, but we're trying to engage our minds this Advent season by reminding ourselves and whoever is out there listening that we also have good reason to believe in the birth story of Jesus. We have good reason to trust the gospel accounts of the birth of Jesus. So, so once again, in fact, um, uh, Jeremy's gonna put up a picture of the, of the book I, I put up there, but once again, I'm just going to um, remind everyone up front that, that my idea for this sermon series and even the sermon themes each week are taken from the book and chapter uh, titles from Rebecca, Rebecca McLaughlin's book, um, Is Christmas Unbelievable? Four questions everyone should ask about the world's most famous story. Right? Thank you. Uh, so, you know, while Christianity around the world is exploding in places like China, did you know in China, uh, experts say within by 2030, there'll be more Christians in China than in the United States. It's amazing. Uh, So Christianity is exploding in places like China and Africa and South America. 
while that's all happening right now, there's an increasing amount of agnosticism, that's an unsureness about God and Jesus and these things, there's an increasing amount of agnosticism, uncertainty about God in the Western world, which would be like the United Kingdom, Canada, and the United States. Shockingly, a quarter of the people polled in the UK just a few years ago said they can't be confident that Jesus even existed, let alone believe that he was born of a virgin by the Holy Spirit, was the Son of God and the resurrected King. So I wanted to take this season of preparation to set out the position that it is reasonable to believe that Jesus was a real historical figure, and we covered that two weeks ago. Um, And then last week, we looked at the main source texts that we have about the birth story of Jesus and his life, and those would be the the Gospels in, in the New Testament. And we asked whether or not those gospels are reliable source texts for for Jesus' life. And and one of the ways I I, kind of had fun doing that was by looking at the historical figure of St. Nicholas, who died in 343 AD. He was a bishop in what's now Turkey. And I showed how over the the centuries, various legends developed about St. Nicholas, such that he morphed into an almost unrecognizable figure today that we call Santa Claus. And Jeremy's going to kind of put that juxtaposition there. So there's, there's St. Nick from a, an icon that's actually from the 900s. Um, and, and there's the, the Santa Claus that most of us are familiar with today. And somehow what I, what I was saying is that there was a legend that developed over centuries from the historical figure of St. Nicholas to this Santa Claus character today. They're not nowhere near the same person, right? And, and, and I asked last week, could it be that the stories about Jesus actually developed something like a legend so that there was a historical figure, Jesus, and then his followers over the centuries sort of made him into more than he actually was, and that's who we worship today. Well, last week, we looked at some strong evidence suggesting that the gospel accounts in the New Testament are very much unlike a legend and that their consistent message remains the same over the centuries, suggesting that they're reliable sources of information about Jesus. And if you're just coming into this conversation, I encourage you to check out the last two weeks of sermons that will make a lot more sense. Um, But today I want to take this whole thing one step further. You know, because it's one thing to believe that the Gospels give us an accurate account of like where Jesus was born in in general, right? Um, It's very much another thing to believe in the spectacular claims of the gospels, like like angelic visitations and the virgin birth in particular. I mean, those those are fantastic claims. I don't know anyone in my life who was a virgin and then got pregnant. Uh, and had a baby. I've I've never been visited by an angel personally, and I don't know many people who have. I don't know personally anyone who has. And and so, can we trust that? I mean, that's that's quite a leap. And so to illustrate, um, I want to go back to our friend St. Nicholas and a miraculous story about him. Um, Remember, St. Nicholas died in 343 AD, and we have almost no historical records of his life. We have it on good authority that he was a follower of Jesus and that he was a bishop uh, of of the church, and he lived in Myra, which is in modern-day Turkey. We also know that it's quite plausible that he... um, The story of him giving these three bags of gold to a family that was poor, had three daughters, they didn't have enough money for dowry, and they they could have had to gone into prostitution as the culture and times 
uh, dictate. And so he snuck you know, into their home and left bags of gold so they could have a dowry. That's quite a plausible story. But you know, it's not until the Middle Ages that we get these fantastic stories about St. Nicholas, his ability to fly and to teleport. One story has him like, he, he goes into this home where there's slaves and he grabs onto the slaves and then he teleports them and himself to another place to rescue them, right? Um, and one fantastic story in particular jumps out that I just found interesting and I'm not sure you're gonna be any better for it, but I'm gonna say it anyway. So like three boys um, were uh, away from home Some versions of the story have them out playing. Some versions of the story have them out in a field working, but they're a few villages away from their home and they lose track of time and it gets late. And so they decide that they need to stay somewhere overnight. That's not their home. Now, one version of the story has them staying at a butcher's home. They knock on the door and say, hey, can we stay here? And the butcher puts them up. Uh, Another version of the story has them going to an inn and the innkeeper puts them up. That's irrelevant really because the, the main part of the story is whoever the person of the house was, was a a crazy murderer and murdered the three boys and chopped them up into pieces and put them in a barrel. And like any good murderer does, you know, saves the evidence by pickling them. So these three boys are in a, some stories have one giant pickle barrel. Others have, they each get a pickle barrel. But the point is the boys and their parts are all pickled in barrels. And they're gone for seven years, right? So everyone just thinks they died. I don't know what they think. The boys are gone. And St. Nicholas, seven years later, he's traveling, and he happens to stay at this place. And he senses in his spirit that some evil, great evil had gone there. And he's drawn, his focus is drawn to the pickle barrel. And so he has the owner of the the play, the establishment, open the pickle barrel, and there's these parts of these boys, and St. Nicholas prays over them, and they like come back to life and reconnected all of their, their parts. And this is the story. Now, in some versions, uh, let's go to that picture of the pickle bear story. Um, I think, think uh, not this one. That one. Okay, so there's a, an earlier picture you see. On that one, you got the three guys in the pickle barrel. Notice that they're already like monks. They've got their habit on and their haircuts funky. Uh, and that one, you've got a repentant butcher, murderer guy, and he's like, oh, I'm sorry, you're obviously special. Um, And the other one you've got, yes, I hope you're not scandalized um, by the butt cheeks, but then also in the upper right, you see like there is the, there is the murderer and sort of like, I'm in trouble, I'm going to leave now. So like, so this is late Middle Ages, we're getting stories like this about St. Nicholas and this miraculous, spectacular story with like zero historical evidence, zero specificity in the names or places where this happens. And why am I bringing this up? It's not to show you those butt cheeks. Take those away, Jeremy. (laughs) Why why bring this up on an Advent uh, sermon? Uh, Because this was a common way of writing about heroes of the Christian faith in the Middle Ages uh, in particular. And it's called hagiography, hagiography. Two Greek words smushed together. Hagios means holy. So if you've heard of the Hagia Sophia in Constantinople, the holy wisdom is what that means. 
And graphe is the Greek word for writing, so it's holy writing, hagiography. And, and the way that hagiography works is they would take the, the true historical saints. So there's great hagiography about St. Francis and St. Martin. St. Martin's got some great stories. And what they do is they take the real historical figure and and then they would sensationalize certain parts of their lives as a way of stoking veneration and awe and wonder for this very real saint and the God who works in and through them. It was really a beautiful way of writing if you understood that it was hagiography, right? And so the thing with hagiography is that it's not intended to be a historical account. And the early readers of these stories weren't necessarily thinking that they actually did all of these things, but it was a devotional account of the person's life. And it's usually written centuries after that person had already died. So for example, you've heard of St. Patrick on the island of Ireland, the great evangelist there, and you know the legend where like St. Patrick prayed and all the snakes swam off the island. So there's no snakes on Ireland because of St. Patrick. Uh, you all, I think a lot of you know I went to Iona on a sabbatical in 2013, and that was a big deal for me. I learned a lot about St. Columba, who founded that uh, monastery. He was a great evangelist. He also was a man known for the power of his prayer, and a lot of historical documents have like some really cool, miraculous stuff that's probably got historical roots to it. But part of the hagiography in one of the, uh, the great biographies on him by a man named St. Adamnan is that he encountered the Loch Ness Monster. And that a monk was actually getting attacked by Nessie, had, had this monk in his mouth, and St. Columba, full of the Holy Spirit, rebuked the Loch Ness Monster. And not only did it release this monk that was in his jaws, but then it's confined to Loch Ness. And fun fact, that's the first place in, uh, in the English language where we have writings about the Loch Ness Monster. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, if you're ever making a trivia game, we add that one on there. So is the story of like the angelic vision to Zechariah, angels coming to Mary and Joseph, is that hagiography or is that history? Is the virgin birth of Mary giving birth to Jesus, uh, is that hagiography or is that a historical account? I think the first of those two questions is pretty straightforward. The Gospels and all of the New Testament don't read anything like hagiography. They're just completely a different style of literature. It's like the difference between a a newspaper article and the life of St. Patrick or something like that. They're They're just so different. Um, The Gospels and letters uh, of of the apostles are are intentionally grounded in history. They use specific names and dates and places. They purport to be the actual findings. And and some of them get so specific, like Luke's gospel, where he's like, hey, I interviewed all these people. This event happened under the reign of Quirinius in the year, blah, blah, blah. And so uh, it's very different from hagiography. Hagiography does not include those types of details. Because the point isn't that it actually happened. It's like, look at what God can do through Saint so-and-so. Hagiography often reads like, like a fable with nameless characters except for the saint who's the subject of the story. 
The Gospels are full of context, but most importantly, they claim to be the eyewitness accounts of people who actually saw Jesus and knew Jesus, or like the Gospel of Luke, who claims to be a historian who interviewed eyewitnesses who knew Jesus and saw Jesus and and were witnesses to all of these things. So very clearly not hagiography. Um, They're intended to be read as history. But to me, that's okay, that clears that question up. It's not hagiography, but it sort of makes things a little more difficult now because in our current culture, right, like sometimes spoken and sometimes assumed, it's sort of like assumed that modern science hasn't it sort of done away with the whole miracle thing. Like, eh, I don't know that we need miracles anymore. I don't know that they stack up to scientific regimen. So uh, since you can't, for example, repeat miracles, therefore you can't apply the scientific method to them, therefore you can't prove that they exist. And that is true. You cannot prove that miracles exist. But it's a completely different topic to consider whether or not the scientific method is the right tool to always determine if something is true or not. To me, and to many scientists out there, science is a descriptive discipline. It helps us to observe the observable, to test the testable, to make hypotheses, and then to test those hypotheses. It's a wonderful discipline. I love science. And I think that science, and this is another topic, but I'll just throw the sentence paragraph out there and then we can talk later. I think that science as a discipline is only made possible because of the Christian worldview. When you think about when Christianity is coming onto the scene, they're in a Greek context that devalued the physical world and highlighted the real ethereal world. Christians are the one that said, and Jews as well, and Muslims that say, hey, God made this world, made the earth. It's worth paying attention to and noticing and making artistic expressions of and to to love and to care for. So, science is really important. Helps us observe the things that are and that can be repeated and tested. But as soon as uh, science tries to tell us exactly why things happen or how things that can't be observed can't happen, well, then it sort of like jumped out of its lane and gotten into the territory of philosophy and theology. It's like, maybe you should stay in your lane and do what you do really well and let the other lanes do what they do really well. To be clear, by their very nature, miracles are not normal. (laughs) That's why they're miraculous, right? They're not normal. They are extraordinary events that mystify and humble those who experience them. Miracles are hard to believe. And they're not just hard for us to believe. Um, like Matthew 28, for example, Jesus has died. He's been crucified. He's, it, the narrator tells us he's been resurrected. He goes to visit his, his disciples who know him better than anyone. He shows up in the flesh and some of them who are with him, I'm not so sure. Like it, the, Matthew tells us that some doubted in that moment that that was really the resurrected Jesus. Miracles are weird. They are hard to believe. And I love that story in Matthew 28 because first of all, it has the mark of authenticity. Uh, the first apostles of Jesus had a hard time believing in the resurrection. Now, why would you add that into the gospel unless it happened and you had a commitment to telling the truth about things? 
I love that. Uh, And notice that nearly every time a human being in the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, anytime they encounter an angel in the Bible, people are terrified. Like it's not a normal thing. People don't just chill with angels all the time and you're the weird one for not believing in it or having a hard time believing it. Like it's weird. And this is an important detail to remember. When we read about miracles in the Bible, we are not seeing moments when God suspends the the forces of nature, right? Instead, the Bible portrays God as the creator of all things, the one who covers um, the very molecules of matter. He, he, He created them and he can manipulate them at his will. The reason we're invited to take the biblical claim of angel visitations and virgin birth seriously is because God is the one who's supposedly doing these things. Mary's not the first virgin. Um, The spirit of God is filled with life, if you take my meaning. Because the very first uh, verses of the Bible describe the spirit of God hovering over another virgin scene, the nothingness the void, right? And in this formless void, God's Holy Spirit, through the command of God, creates something out of nothing. Structure and order and light and life. How can we believe in miracles and the birth story of Jesus, angel visitations and virgin births? Well, partly because we're living in a miracle right now. We're living in a miracle right now. The fact that you and I exist at all is amazing. Um, The more we learn as a a people, as a human uh, race, the more we learn about nature and the origins of the universe, the more there's a growing consensus around Christians, Jews, Muslims, and atheist scientists alike around the general idea that the universe was literally born seemingly out of nothing. The real miracle is that there is anything at all. Uh, Tim Keller quotes from uh, Francis Collins' wonderful book, The Language of God. And if you're into this stuff, pick up The Language of God. It's fantastic. But Francis Collins writes, we have this very solid conclusion that the universe had an origin, the Big Bang. 15 billion years ago, the universe began with an unimaginably bright flash of energy from an infinitesimally small point. And that implies that before that point, there's nothing. He continues, I can't imagine how nature, in this case the universe, could have created itself. And the very fact that the universe had a beginning implies that someone was able to begin it. And it seems to me that had to be someone outside of nature. Of course, that does not prove the creator is a personal God, let alone the God of our Bible. But it is a marker. It's a sign pointing towards something rather than nothing a creator who wills a beginning rather than random chance. And that literally is not nothing. That's a starting point. But of course, we don't just have the creation of matter and light and energy somehow, some might say miraculously, 
you and I are alive and conscious and contemplating these things. How did that come to be? When we observe the vastness of space and its billions of galaxies and trillions of suns, we would have to come to the conclusion that the vast majority of the universe would destroy life as we know it. It's too cold, it's too hot, it's too toxic, it's too radioactive, it's too vacuous, it's too much. It's extra, as the kids say. The universe is extra. Uh, Our tiny blue planet is uniquely, almost miraculously tuned to support life. One writer said that our planet is like a welcome mat from a creator. Some theologians and philosophers call this the fine-tuning argument, and the basic premise is that uh, the mathematical odds of the universe randomly producing our planet and our solar system with life springing up from no outside help is just, it just defies logic. Listen to Francis Collins again, quoted from Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. When you look at the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if the universe knew we were coming. There are 15 constants, the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force, etc., that have precise values. If any one of these constants was off by even one part in one million, or in some cases, one part in a million million, the universe couldn't have actually come to the point where we see it. Like, matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxies, no stars, or planets at all. It's the argument from fine-tuning. Is that proof of a god? No. But it is suggestive. It is suggestive. And for me and many others who have thought about this sort of evidence and so much more out there that I don't have time to share, but it makes more sense to believe in a creative personal force that intentionally created the universe or a planet and life as we know it. Creation by random chance takes, for me, more faith, especially because random chances still cannot explain why there is matter in the first place. Like, why is there something and not nothing? As we re-engage now with the biblical text, we see that we're not left really with the choice between a nameless creative force and random chance because the scriptures, which, I mean, I'm a preacher of the scriptures and there's some expectation that you're here because you're wanting to hear stuff from the scriptures, right? So like, this isn't like a logical leap I would just make to someone who is completely skeptical, but you are in a church, so I'm gonna assume that you wanna hear Bible stuff too. But like, <laughs> um, as we re-engage with the biblical text, we see that we don't just have a choice between a creator and random chance because supposedly the God of the universe has revealed himself in the scriptures to us. And it says that the God who is this creative spirit created the world out of nothing. He's the one the scriptures claim brought life to Mary's womb. And if he's the God who, who sends angelic messengers to do his will and like to talk to Joseph uh, in a dream and, and, and comes to Mary in person to honor her by choosing all women, like if he can create the universe, he can do those things. If we entertain the possibility that God can create 
something out of nothing and a planet like ours with such precision to bring about life, then we can certainly make the reasonable mental step that he could have made an angelic being to serve as his messenger. And if God can create uh, something out of nothing, then the virgin birth or like walking on water, like if you invent molecules and put them together to all these cool other, you know, I mean, look at the diversity even in this room, all of those molecules doing that. I mean, you're, just, you're just building blocks of atoms so uniquely and creatively put together. Couldn't that God like, Think how simple, like compared to the complexity of Casey Harmon. Look at this guy. He's amazing. Like the God, I mean, you're made of all sorts of stuff, but like to just walk on H2O and like Jesus just say like, I kind of want you to go together right now so I don't fall in. I mean, that seems like super simple. So if the God can do all that stuff, it's not much of a logical leap to say, well, you could probably make a life in a womb, Right? After all, if God is God, then he's going to do God stuff. And that seems like God stuff to me. You know what I think, though, is the good news of Scripture is that the God of the Bible is the God who does God stuff. Let Let me just, I've been thinking about this. A God who can do God stuff isn't necessarily a good thing. Not necessarily a good thing. We, we would assume that the God who creates out of nothing is powerful beyond our comprehension. But that doesn't mean that same God who is that powerful is guaranteed to be good or loving or even kind. It could be a lot worse. Um, our scripture reading today from Luke 1, 26 through 38 includes God's stuff in it. Uh, an angelic visit, Uh, The claim that that God is going to honor this young virgin by carrying not only a special baby, but God himself, the son of the most high. But the passage is so much more than the power that God has to do these things or the plausibility of God being able to do these things. Um, If it's a mathematical, statistical miracle that our planet supports life against all odds, think how amazing it is that of all the variations of God there could be, our God is Yahweh, God of Scripture. It's the God who shows himself consistently loving and humble and self-giving. God-sized stuff is not only the power to create a universe and to create life, it's also the ability and the desire to see a person like Mary an unwed teen from a small town in a politically insignificant nation like Israel under the imperial occupation of the Roman Empire? What a God. What a Savior. If God can see Mary and honor her, if he cares enough to encourage Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 to basically adopt him, the Son of God, Oh man, if he's the sort of God who can reach out to the pagan magi and invite the dirty shepherds to his birth, then he's truly become a God who is born for us all. No matter how small we might feel, no matter how prideful we might feel, God truly came for us all. 
Our sin is real. The darkness is real. Death is real. Suffering is real. Grief is real. And God does God's stuff. He meets us in the mess and walks with us in the mess. God does God's stuff. He lays down his life that he too can do more than walk with us. He will bring all good things, all things to a good and glorious new creation because he laid his life down. And I, I want to be part of that. That's why I follow Jesus. I want to be part of that good restoration of all things. So when God does God's stuff, I want to do Mary stuff. And with as much integrity and faith as I can muster, say, behold the servant of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your will. Lord, let that be my prayer. Let that be our prayer. Thank you for who you are, for what you've done, and for what you